Yes, one. Yes. Yes. Hey, sorry. I'm like technically challenged. <laughs> no worries. We have like many advanced degrees between us, but the internet is hard sometimes. <laughs> Dr. Purby, Dr. Stacy, I am so honored. I know we planned this a few months ago and I was hyperventilating. I was like, oh my gosh, we need to get a live stream with the three of us. And we're finally here. <laughs> we did it. We have a lot to unpack today. If you could please introduce yourselves. Sure. So I'm Dr. Stacy Dillon. I'm a board certified physician. My specialty is guidance oncology and family planning and I also do COVID science communication on Instagram. And I'm Dr. Purvi Parikh. I'm an allergist and immunologist. Clearly I'm technologically challenged <laughs> but other than that <laughs> I've been very involved in this pandemic with all the vaccine trials and trying to fight misinformation when I'm having good technology days. <laughs> so, but I'm very excited to be here and I'm a big fan of both of you, uh, oh, you know, no. just for being awesome human beings. So thank you very much <laughs> for having you. me. I am a big fan. When I told my friends that, oh my gosh, we have a date confirmed with Dr. Pervy and Dr. Stacy, I was like, am I, is this real right now? Am I, am I dreaming? Is this really real? But they actually don't know that, you know, we're sharing memes and funny yeah. messages in our group chat, right? Um, you are both so accomplished people. And I always ask them, I guess, that the road that you took to get to where you are now, you know, the whole medical journey is such a long and arduous road. And we have pre-meds and med students just watching. I know Dr. Parikh answered this before, but what is the biggest regret if you do have in this whole journey, whether it's throughout school or throughout practice that you have pursuing medicine if there are <laughs> you had one before now i want to know what dr preeks was yeah i was like what was my regret <laughs> i'm trying to remember but i actually didn't i actually think at least what i said before i didn't really have any regrets because yeah. i feel like even like you know there's a lot of ups but there's also of course a lot of downs you know and there's a lot of time invested like if you want to go into medicine even if you go straight through like i went straight through since kindergarten you're still like sacrificing most of your 20s especially if you're subspecializing a lot of your 30s so i actually don't have any regrets because i think it's like made me the person i am today and you know i've, I've made incredible friendships along the way people i trained with with people who trained me, incredible mentors. And, and you really get to connect with people, I think, in a different way than any other job because you're with people at their most vulnerable and they actually, believe it or not, see you when you're at your most vulnerable, right? And I'm, I'm sure Stacey will agree, like, you know, taking care of people is like not easy and we, we take it very, very seriously. So it's, it's just, I don't know, it's just a very interesting job that I think is unlike any other, you know? And I, I would love to hear what Dr. What Dr. Stacey says, but I, I actually don't have any regrets. Yeah. I was like, whoa. Yeah. What would I do differently? I, I don't know, because <laughs> I don't know what the <laughs> other outcome would have been. <laughs> yeah, I think it's funny you're asking Dr. Preek and I, we're all like post-residency, post-fellowship, we've been attendings for a while. And so I think when you mentioned medical training, if you had asked me during residency, I would have been like, worst mistake I ever made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, that's true. Um, yeah, it's a really, really challenging long time that requires <laughs> a lot of commitment and a lot of med school loans and all those kinds of things mm -hmm. that, it, you know, if people ask me about it, I'm honest about the under taking that it is but now in the job that I have now I think in my work that I do primarily around family planning and it comes to making choices about you know contraception and to do gender affirming care and you know all these ways in which I can make a real impact in people's lives so I find my work really meaningful so I would agree I don't have any regrets but it's also you know
you know, it's a practice of medicine is really, really challenging at times. I'm sure that, you know, you working in medicine can attest to. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. I mean, I would agree. It's not for the faint hearted. I think the one it's not really a regret, but I think I wish I understood more what I was signing up for. But I think there's no way to understand that because I think people yeah. tried to explain it to me. But you know, like your mindset is just very different. And until you've gone through it, it's, it's really almost impossible to understand, I think. But I think what's interesting about the practice of medicine, too, is that I'm sure if you had asked both Dr. Freak and I like two years ago, if you thought that, you know, this part of like education for people around infectious disease and being a physician voice would be part of our practice. I'm sure you're yeah. probably like me, you were just seeing patients, like those sorts of things. And so it really does give you, I think, the ability to do something meaningful for a broader audience beyond just your patients as well. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. and I feel like that's the beauty in medicine, right? It's so diverse. You have the hospital work, you have clinic work. And I feel like a bulk of our conversations today would be when the pandemic started, I feel like there was so much representation of medicine in the social media space. And mm -hmm. thankfully to like the two of you who are using social media to amplify news that are so important, especially about COVID. But prior to that, we did have questions sent in. And one of the greatest questions were your most memorable experience in medicine so far. So I think this started when, I don't know if you remember, I posted that story where Dr. Calvin Sen and ED Doc here, the weirdest things he found in a person's <laughs> human body. And Dr. Farik replies to my story and Dr. Stacy as well. <laughs> we've all heard crazy things. Yeah, we've all had crazy things. The emergency room as part of our medical training. So and usually our job as like the med students was to to help fish it out. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they we they would always sacrifice the med student. Even like if there was like even if it wasn't like a foreign body and if it was a fecal disinfection, I remember I like I like it was yesterday when I was an intern yeah. in the ER. They were like well, you're up, Parikh. You're yeah, the intern. We actually, I was like, and because we knew the med students always had to do the disinfections, like <laughs> I would scan the ER like list to just see what. The, and if there was, I would schedule my lunch break. So I'd be like, I have to go. Like I can't. <laughs> it was so funny because when I had to do one as an intern, like I wish someone took a photo. I looked so ridiculous. Like I was trying to like cover every single part of my body because I was like so like oh god, I have to do this, you know. But I didn't, you know. It, I just looked so ridiculous. I had like a gown on, like. Oh Triple gloves. Yeah. And that's why and that's why she like focuses on giving allergy shots. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, right, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> like, I'll stick to the COVID vaccine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and speaking of that, for those who didn't catch my stories, what was the weirdest thing that you fished out of a person's body wherever that exit site was from <laughs> there was an apple core once like that was on my general surgery rotation that someone had like put up their bottom and then kids actually love putting stuff in their nose like including mm. uh, my nephew recently put a toy up there like a few years ago but there's a lot of weird things i don't know stacy what you, you've yeah, probably well, seen I'm it all so i fish <laughs> lots of things out of it. i mean i think the most common thing that people have like condoms that are lost in the vagina and need help removing those but definitely the weirdest one was when i was you know the gyn consult in the er someone had a set of keys up there so it was like oh, a wow. <laughs> so that was I don't one. even want to know how that happened. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's but that's often, but that's often a thing that happens. Like people come, you know, to the ER just to the clinic for things to. Oh my to gosh! Out, Sounds so. like someone was trying to open up something there. <laughs> Those <laughs> keys. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, how about was there a moment where you felt the most scared 
in your whole medical career, whether it's through school or training or even as an attending now? Yeah, I mean, I always feel scared when, mm. you know, it is a li- like a life or death situation. So if mm. somebody like so in residency, obviously, I was an internal medicine resident. So we were responsible, especially as senior residents of going to every single code blue, every single cardiac mm. arrest in the hospital, if we were in the ICU, and we were like running the codes as senior residents. So that's always obviously scary, because it's a life or death situation. Even now we'll have like anaphylaxis in our office. And it's so funny, like they, my husband was making fun of me. I've been on more in flight emergencies than like anyone I know including like 48 hours yeah oh, all the not time every again. time I fly on a plane I swear to god I'm <laughs> so I was just on one in, in 48 hours ago and I was in an in-flight emergency and like luckily everything always turns out fine but it is it, you know and I'm I don't know if you would agree but like you know they ask you you know do you want to land the plane right now and so yeah you're, you're making a judgment call with very limited resources obviously so, so yeah I don't think that fear factor goes away at any point in your medical career and people 40, 50 years senior to me say the same thing because at the end of the day, we're caring for people in their lives, right? Mm-hmm. And there's always going to be certain moments that you're fearful, you know, but. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think some of it, there are pieces of it that as you get farther along in your medical career, when you face like medical emergencies, you start to have more of a sense of competence and then you can right. sort of be the one to help the residents who are learning or the med students who are learning. But I would agree. There's always those moments in, in medicine that sort of make your heart race and, you know a real challenge and I'm sure yeah. for you in the OR as well like you know mm-hmm. when unexpected things happen I'm mm-hmm. sure that that's stressful yeah. for sure <laughs> yeah yeah and I think that's a big question that students have many times even for me like imposter syndrome comes in and sometimes I feel like oh my gosh how, how will I ever survive this given also that the road is long or I guess residents as well right Dr. Parikh and I talked about this before that there's actually a high occurrence of death by suicide in the resident population feelings of yes burnout and also like will I ever get this will I ever be able to do this confidently and what do you think would be your message for that population either for med students or even the residents who feel disappointed in themselves or discouraged or whatnot yeah I think that that's a real issue so my first boss as attending like I you know the first time I had a surgical complication I I felt like I wanted to quit Mm -hmm. and she gave me an article about imposter syndrome that I pass on to other people and I think this sort of thing is you know, if you're someone who has imposter syndrome, if you're worried that you're not good enough and you're trying to get better, you know, people who are really just like doing a bad job and don't care about their patients and don't mm-hmm. care about it, they're not struggling with that, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all of medicine is like all of the training part of it is about asking for help and learning from those around you. So I think as long as, you know, are in that setting and you keep working towards always being a better physician, I think that can really, it just takes time to get past. And I think, you know, particularly women are really, really subject to that imposter syndrome that we get that message a lot, you know, we're not as valued. And I think anyone who's minoritized in any way in medicine often gets an external message that they're not good enough or they're not supposed to be there. And I think that that's a message that sometimes we internalize that we need to, you know, fight back against. Yeah, I would agree. And I would even say like, there's a reason why medical training takes so long. Uh, And the reason is it's that experience that gives you that confidence, right? And that makes certain things become second nature. So, you know, something that's very scary as an intern is less scary by the time you're a senior resident, even less so by the time you're 
fellow or an attending. And it almost, the whole point is, so it becomes like a second nature, like it becomes like an instinct, you know, and, and there's always going to be things you don't know, you know, it's impossible in medicine to know it all. Like anyone who says that is lying, you know, you, this is a profession where you're a lifelong student. I have attendings that are 30, 40 years, my senior who's run cases by me and I run cases by them because there's a, you know, there's reason new things come about and vice versa. So no one knows everything. Everyone is on this lifelong quest for knowledge. And yeah, I think the experience helps. But the suicide thing, I'm glad you brought that up because it's a real problem. I actually just heard some sad news this weekend that two residents at Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx committed suicide this year. And I'm curious to know the circumstances around it. I don't know, but it is a problem. And, you know, I think it just shows that we, we do need to support our trainees and even after training, because while you're training, you have this idea that, okay, once I'm an attending, everything will be all like rainbows and butterflies. But that's not true either. Because the sad statistic is that a doctor kills themselves attending physician every single day in a given year, like we lose over 300 doctors a year, which is crazy, you know, so there's a lot of I think systemic changes. I, I don't think it's a profession of medicine, because like, we love what we do. I think, unfortunately, it's like the system around it. But I can rant about that for a whole nother Instagram live for an hour. And you will. Since you brought it up, I just I felt I had to say something, you know, because I think it's a big issue for public health of physicians. Yeah, and I think news wise, specific to a physician committing suicide was during the pandemic, right? One of the head ER docs here in mm -hmm. New York City. And there are some things that when I talk about it now, I still try to repress it in my mind, considering how traumatic everything oh, yeah. was. And everything was so quick, especially here in New York City when the spike happened. And us three were here that whole time during that whole period. And I can just remember the very first time we were on my floor in the night shift working and we got our very first news of a PUI in the emergency room. Even the doctors themselves were like so frantic because during that time we had no guidelines on PPE. We didn't have any PPE. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to ask you both to take me back to the, the very first time that, I don't know, you heard about the virus or how bad it was getting and how did you react to it? And in the grander scale of things, how did that change your practice, either in your facility or as a physician yourself and in like your personal life? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. It all kind of happened very quickly in mm -hmm. a way because I remember, you know, around New Year's, we heard, okay, there's something going on mm -hmm. uh, in China and then we were hearing things, but for some reason, it just seemed so remote. And then all of a sudden, when I remember when New York shut down, I remember the day because it was like Friday the 13th, Friday, yeah. March 13th, everything shut down. And then all of a sudden, it just seemed like it exploded. You know, we went from like zero to 100. And it was like sirens 24 seven. Mm -hmm. And then we were hearing about 700, 800 deaths mm -hmm. a day. And then even people I know started getting sick. And then mm -hmm. unfortunately, I know people closely who passed away too. And mm -hmm. it was just really scary because like, it's already stressful being in medicine and caring for other people's lives. You're like, I have that stress on my shoulders. But then this is the first time you have to worry about yourself, about mm -hmm. testing family members. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't see any of my family for like the first three months of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I was afraid, you know, um, and I wasn't in the front front lines in the ER or ICU, but we were still caring for our um, allergy and asthma patients because mm -hmm. we stayed open. We didn't want them to end up in the ER and further strain the system. You never know. You, you We didn't know, like you said, like if we were even doing the right things or <laughs> protecting ourselves properly or them. It was 
it was craziness. I don't know. That's the only way I can describe it. Very chaotic. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I spend a lot of my Instagram, you know, telling people to take COVID really seriously. But I think at the beginning, I, I was a resident, I was an intern on labor and delivery for H1N1. And mm -hmm. I remembered it. And I remember people being and we were like, yeah, pregnant women are getting sicker. But I was just like, I'm a young, healthy person. So yeah. I'll be fine. And so when this came around, I heard about it. I was like, yeah, I've been through H1N1, worked through that. And I think like pervy, it was like all of a sudden we realized oh this is very different this is very serious and then we had like you know just a few n95s to last us no ppe you know hospital shut down i was walking to work because the subways weren't safe it was just such a scary time and and you mentioned about you know times which we we're scared and i think that we had to then apply that lens that we had applied to you know like a surgical emergency or like <laughs> dr freak said a you know an anaphylaxis but then start to look at protecting all of our patients and all of our clinics mm -hmm. staff in the same way and you know just sort of shifting that lens to looking out for everybody while just like in the same vein that Dr. Preek said, we knew we had to keep treating patients and you know, what was the best way to do it safely and for everyone. And so I think that's for me when I just started doing like the CDC wasn't giving clear guidance. There was a lot of mixed information. I was like, okay, I really just need to read like every paper that's coming out as I need mm -hmm. to immerse myself in this information. And that's, you know, my friends were asking me questions all the time and I was trying to constantly disseminate everything I learned to them. And then when I reached a certain point, I was like, okay, you know, I wonder if anyone online wants answers to this as well. And then I just, you know, I think as we've all experienced, there's just people really, really hungry for, for information. We would always talk about in the hospital during the height of the pandemic, where we're all gowned up, right? Even the senior nurses and the senior physicians would be like, this is such a crazy virus. They were like, we've lived through different endemics or whatnot. And this is something else. Because I just came out of orientation as a new graduate nurse when I was terrible <laughs> so i work in a cardiac surgery step down floor and my orientation ended end of january so i was like oh i'm getting the hang of it i'm getting the hang of it and yeah. all of a sudden everything changed and in the beginning you know we were seeing our patients in the 50s 60s 70s we're like okay and then over time we were seeing wait there's 40 year olds there's 30 year olds there's one time someone in their 20s was yeah. hospitalized Dang. and that's when we were like wow this is something else and during that time i guess everyone was saying there must be hope because we've had 10 patients die every night i remember helping pack up 10 dead bodies overnight and i would cry after the first one and then i wanted to cry after the second one because i just started in the floor like a few months ago and i felt like oh my gosh i don't know what i'm doing i can't help these people and then we'd have patients you know who'd pass away and i'd be holding my own iphone letting them talk to their family through facetime to say their last goodbyes and i'm there the back tearing up and holding their hands for the very last time and during that time you were like there must be hope at the end of this and the recurring word was just want a vaccine at this point months months later we finally have it and it seems like the reception still was not as good, right? In the beginning, the hope that everyone was waiting for, it finally came and there was still a lot of hesitancy. And I just can't imagine the burden that was on both of you being physicians, you know, promoters of health and the options to one's care. Even until now, we have like so many myths coming out. And that's what I wanted to touch upon on is what is the biggest myth you've heard thus far about 
the COVID vaccine and how do you tackle that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many, <laughs> it's hard to pick one, you know, I mean, we could easily name like 10 right now, you know, that it's just frustrating. And yeah. I think you, you said it so well, like that's the hope, you know, and, and if you saw a lot of healthcare workers when they got their shots were like weeping because it was just like the release of all this like pent up stress. But, you know, I'll, I'll start and then I'll, I'll let Stacey take over because there's so many, but, you know, so many that, you know, it'll change your DNA, it'll make you magnetic, uh, <laughs> I don't know, the infertility one, which, you know, so there's, there's just so many of them. And, and they're all they're all false, you know, and in terms of addressing it, I basically just hear people out. It's mm -hmm. so much easier one on one to fight, I think, vaccine hesitancy than even social media posts or these type of lives, because then you can actually hear the other person's concerns. And for the most part, people are reasonable. And when you explain why that's not true. So like, let's start with infertility. I know people who were not pregnant, got the vaccine and now are pregnant. So that's my, mm -hmm. the clearest way I can dispel that one. I'm like, one, it doesn't make any sense from a medical standpoint, but I can, you know, all of these women are now pregnant that weren't before. Um, and then once you explain it step by step, then people are more receptive, you know, and I think just even using yourself as an example, I'm like, why would I take something that does all of these things? It just doesn't make sense. But, you know, I think it's a lot easier one on one. It's harder not one on one because then there's all this other competing misinformation. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to hear what Stacy says. I'm sure she's had heard heard it all as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting. You know what you said about how we were in it and you know saw people dying. I also wasn't in the ICU or in the hospital, but we had a, the same exact experience where we had a few nurses who worked for us, but also worked in the ICU. Mm -hmm. I, I I remember the day that that one came in and she was like a 20 year old today and you know this 30 year old had a stroke and we started seeing mm -hmm. these things that we just knew up close like the horrors of it mm -hmm. um we all had colleagues who were, you know, sending messages frantically to each other, like my residency class, a lot of them, you know, did work in the hospital, and we were just sending, you know, trying to update each other, and we just all knew it on the ground. And so, you know, the thought of the vaccine was what I held out hope for. And the day I got mine was so emotional, and yeah. waiting for my partners to get theirs was like so emotional, my family, those were all big milestones. And so I think it's easy for us in the healthcare industry, because we've seen it up close. And, and there's a lot of misinformation that floats around being like, oh, it wasn't that bad, or it wasn't that yeah. serious mm -hmm. or because I'm young and healthy like I won't be affected because mm -hmm. you know by and large elderly people in this country got vaccinated got vaccinated quickly mm -hmm. and the reason why is because they saw their friends die right yeah. they saw the community around them die and they didn't want to and so my fear is that now that we're seeing the delta variant mm -hmm. really circulate among young people and we're starting to see those rates of hospitalizations and deaths go up around among that population that will have people you know sort of learning the same way like I've lost a friend to it mm -hmm. Or like New Yorkers did being like, I saw what happened to my community. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's time for me to get vaccinated. And, you know, this vaccine is like, the, the amount of safety data that we have on it is just overwhelming. Like it's one of, you know, some of the best I've ever seen for one of the most like highly scrutinized public interventions that exists. And so if it was much, much riskier, I still would have taken my chances with it. You know, like if, if I knew I had a much higher risk profile, I, I still would have taken that gamble, but it's not, it's, it's really, really safe. And so I think there's a lot of misinformation around there. And then people also think that, you know, that, oh, it's a new vaccine. We have to really try and figure out and see if anything's going to happen. And, you know, Dr. Preet can talk much better about this. She knows so well how, you know, the mRNA vaccines 
how long they've been in development, these other types of vaccines, how long, and that the global community came together really to eliminate the sort of bureaucratic, arduous steps of these pieces of research trials that take a long time or the manufacturing pieces that wait on information then do it later. It's sort of everyone worked together to get it to come out quickly. But the piece that was not sacrificed in these trials was safety. And so we do have all the safety data there. And, you know, in my field, the myths that, that float around about infertility and pregnancy, I mean, we now just have overwhelming data about how, you know, one of the largest studies said that showed there were more miscarriages in the group that, that didn't have the vaccine, you know? So we know it's been really studied. They deliberately didn't survey pregnant women in the initial trials, but a lot of those people got pregnant anyway. There's just no question that it is incredibly safe for patients who are trying to conceive or who are pregnant. I mean, my best friend, I highly recommended she got her shot like at 39 weeks pregnant. You know, that was a really, you know, mm -hmm. she was so excited to get it. And I absolutely encouraged her to do so. And I know that Dr. Parikh told me once that she told her parents to get, you know, as soon as she had the data on the Moderna safety, that she signed mm -hmm. her parents up to get into mm -hmm. the trial as soon as she could. So and that's the way that we look at it in the healthcare industry. And I also think for all of us in healthcare, like we probably similar in fields like the military or other things where just vaccines to protect people around us is a part of our lives. We're subject, you know, each time we start a hospital, we have to have all our vaccines up to date. You know, it's just a blood work to make sure our antibody titers are high for things like hepatitis. Like those things are a part of the job. And so, and maybe for people who are not in that field and it seems new to them, they haven't gotten a lot of vaccines. It might seem, you know, overwhelming, but I think that our job is just to convince people that it may feel like a high risk thing to do to go to somewhere to get a vaccine, but the real high risk action is to not get vaccinated. And it's harder for people to sort of see and understand that. Yeah, I think that out of sight, out of mind thing, as you mentioned, is, is huge because, you know, we're we're lucky. I mean, there are parts of the world like India, for example, right, that have mm -hmm. billions of people and they have, mm -hmm. I think, less than 5% of their entire population vaccinated yeah. and they would like give their left arm to get it, you know, and, you know, so it's like heartbreaking when I see people turn it down here. And that's because they're seeing like the effects of not having it, you know, and, and the same thing, like other parts of the world, same thing, where they don't have access to vaccines. It's like a no brainer. They're like, of course, I would do this because they've seen the alternative. So I think that makes a big difference. So sadly, vaccines are a victim of their own success. Because here, we haven't seen that devastation. Unfortunately, people think that they're not as crucial as they are. Yeah. And given that there are a big pool of the community and even the nation that are vaccinated, we still and with the Delta variant talks up in the air. We see that CDC is saying guidelines here and then who is saying something else. As experts in the practical field, what do you think for yourself should be the general guideline for someone who's vaccinated or not vaccinated? I know CDC has said, oh, you don't need to mask up anymore, right? In certain degrees if you're vaccinated or not. And who is saying something else? What do you think should the general population do when it comes to masking and social distancing, given that we do have the Delta variant going around. I think it's really important to remember that the CDC is like a public health agency, mm -hmm. right? And so that you, it's important to issue these broad guidelines, you know, about like, what do we know broadly about vaccinated people, like vaccinated people, and this is, you know, true for any of the vaccines you've gotten, whether it's Moderna or Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson, if you encounter even the Delta variant or all the known variants that we have out there, you know, you're not going to die, you're not going to end up hospitalized and you're going to avoid the, the most severe illness, you know, but there are occasionally some breakthrough infections. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, a lot of people in our population. So not when we're not looking at like this broad public health level, right, there are people who are immunocompromised, and they got a vaccine, it doesn't mm -hmm. work. There's people who for socioeconomic reasons haven't had the opportunity to 
take two separate days off plus a day off for their vaccine or the area that they live in, you know, vaccines haven't reached them easily. And there's all of children, right, who haven't been vaccinated yet. So the public health guidelines that vaccinated people are safer and can move around the world in a much safer way mm -hmm. is absolutely true. But in terms of the individual decisions, I think that we're in this really kind of delicate period right now where, you know, the Delta variant is rising. And so I think that, you know, to continue to wear masks when you're in public places or mixed company, you're not wrong to do that, even if you're mm -hmm. vaccinated in an effort to protect others. And I think that we're just sort of, you know, the WHO added this new recommendation in light of the Delta variant. And we're also seeing kind of strange things happen in the country. Like there are certain states that are doing well, really well, where like, even if you were unmasked, the population of people who are around you who aren't vaccinated is going to be very low. But in certain, you know, states across the South where the vaccination rates are in the 30%, like the behavior might have to be mm -hmm. modified. So I think that it's really, I wish that there was, you know, as doctors, we'd like to give prescriptions, take X and you'll feel better. But it's a really, really nuanced conversation around risk in a time where, you know, we're seeing lots of long COVID and these other outcomes mm -hmm. that we studied a lot better. So, you know, I always tell people that they're not wrong to keep their gatherings to small groups of vaccinated people for the absolute safest way to sort of move around the world until we know more. But I'd love to hear Dr. Freak's opinion. Yeah, I think people forget that these are guidelines. So they're not like testament or rules set in stone. So you have to adapt them to you, you know, so that's key. So exactly, you know, what Stacey was saying is that like, you have to apply it to yourself. So the same thing with like, let's say a diabetic, right, that has to avoid sugar, one diabetic who's really uncontrolled has to be much stricter about it than the person who is well controlled, right. So it's the same thing with the masking. And there's so many factors, it's impossible even for the CDC to give blanket guidelines, because, you know, to Dr. Dylan's point, if you're living in an area where there's low vaccination rates and variant is raging, then yes, keep that mask on everywhere, you know, whether you're high risk or low risk, but if you're somewhere else and you're in your outdoors, uh, you don't have to be as strict, you know, if you're in a place where the vaccination rates are very, very high and the infection rates are low. But I personally am masking still if I'm indoors with people who I don't know all of their vaccination statuses or public transport. Anytime I go into a store, I'm still masking because to me, it's not that big of a burden and I, I don't mind, you know. Yes, it, it does feel good to outside in the summer heat to take my mask off you know, especially if there's not a ton of people around. So you have to use your judgment. Some of my patients will ask me, so I have patients with severe asthma, I'll tell them, you know, don't change anything you're doing, be careful, or people who have immune deficiencies. So it's very, you know, like Dr. Stacey said, very nuanced. So but people have to remember, it's just guidelines. So meaning yeah. this is a starting point, and then you have to tailor it to yourself, you know, and your yeah. family as well. Yeah, and that's the same thing I, I told my friends as well, like, even during the initial rollout of the vaccine, it's that, yes, it's great for us individually to get it, mm -hmm. right? Prevention of severe disease and hospitalization and that. But the concept of herd immunity, right, is also as our job to protect those who cannot get the vaccine. Right. Those right. who may have allergies to it or who have no access to it. It's a very collective effort mm -hmm. right? um, when it comes to the concept of getting a vaccine. It's not just an individual um, job, but for your loved ones and also for collective good. And as we have talked about myths and hesitancy, if there's one message that you could 
spread to the rest of the world with regards to the vaccinations or just this whole pandemic in general which has taken a toll on a lot of people's lives it's not just people who died or family members of those who died people have lost jobs economies have gone down there's many people who couldn't restart after the pandemic it goes way beyond just the healthcare field and like we said the vaccine is the hope to all of this right even transcending the whole healthcare sphere because once this is fixed and over with then things start falling into place what is your biggest message to all those who are watching i would yeah. say sort of one line i keep telling people is just like none of us are safe until all of us are safe mm. and i think that as we have increased access to vaccination in the u.s if we're not paying a lot of attention and pressuring our officials here at home and around the world to make sure the vaccination is available to the entire world then we see the rise of variants that come back to haunt us mm. and that we have a real responsibility to the global community to help mm -hmm. them to avoid you know a lot of the suffering that we did early on in the pandemic mm -hmm. so as much as possible just knowing that you know continue to talk to people in your lives about the importance of vaccination the safety of vaccination be willing to answer questions you know know that it feels novel to a lot of people and that's okay and that there's a lot of misinformation that's really really being targeted for profit to people to frighten people away from vaccines <laughs> So just continue to be willing to have those conversations and be patient, patient with other people and with ourselves as we emerge right. from this really difficult time. Perfectly said. And, and I would just add my one-liner is you should be far more afraid of the virus than the vaccine. <laughs> Even the rare side effects of the vaccine are actually yeah. much higher in incidence than the real virus. So heart inflammation, blood clots, all of that, much more likely to get it from the actual virus. So that's my one uh, takeaway, you know, and if you're sick of this pandemic, as you mentioned, for all those reasons, this is how we get out of it. Yeah. You know, I'm sick of it too. <laughs> We're not enjoying it. it. We want it. We want normal too. So this is the one way we can do it. Honestly, that is also made possible because of people like the two of you spreading evidence-based and up-to-date information about the virus about the vaccine throughout this whole time. I know how appreciative people are. And also to mention other people like Dr. Ali Heater as well, Dr. Risa, right? And even Dr. Jesse, thank you to everyone, even Dr. Danielle Villardo, thank you to all of you. It really gives reassurance to people when they hear it from physicians themselves. Because like we said, <laughs> there's so much misinformation going on in our comments, <laughs> in the DMs, and I know you've both been probably disparaged by that too, by, <laughs> as we say, trolls online. <laughs> um, so thank you for your patience and thank you for your passion in doing all this. And thank you for giving me a chance as well to host this call. Anytime, let's do it again sometime. Yeah. I, I am just so floored because I'm such a big fan of both. <laughs> Big fans of you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Please, please, no, no. Yeah. Well, we're, you know, we're all in this together. I'm sure, you know, Stacey would agree. Like, I feel like I'm friends with both of you, even though we've never met. But, uh, you know, we're all in this together. And, like, no thanks needed. Once we're all safe, that will be thanks enough. <laughs> Any closing statement that both of you would like to say? Or... Get vaccinated. Get vaccinated, yes. I agree with her, what she said. <laughs> and I remember the last time Dr. Parikh and I um, were on live, um, her closing was Darth Vader in oh, the yeah. corner of her room. <laughs> I don't have him with me right now, but <laughs> next time I'll bring Darth Vader. Yes. And doctors, thank you so much. I hope thank you have a great you. night. Have a good night. Good Bye. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.